Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to talk to Podrick Kenny, and we'll be discussing his new book, 1989, Democratic Revolutions at the Cold War's End. There are certain dates that every European historian knows, 1348, 1517, 1648, 1789, 1848, 1914, two decades ago, another historical date was added to the roster, and that would, of course, be 1989. In that year, everything seemed to change. The Berlin Wall came down. The Soviets withdrew from Eastern Europe. The communist parties of Eastern Europe relinquished power. New democratic states emerged, and people danced in the streets, at least for a little while. Padraig Kenny has spent much of his prodigious scholarly career studying what happened in 1989, so it's a great privilege to talk to him about what then transpired. He not only has written a new book about it, as I just mentioned, but he also has written two others, A Carnival of Revolution, Central Europe, 1989, and The Burdens of Freedom, Eastern Europe since 1989. Uh, I highly recommend that you read any or all of these books. So without further ado, here is the interview. Hi, Padraig. Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Um, I should tell our listeners that we have Padraig Kenny on the show today, who was very kind enough to step in at the last minute uh, because I had a couple of cancellations due to H1N1 or something like that. So thanks to Padraig. We'll be talking about a couple of uh, books that he's written, actually three books that he's written, um, and they are A Carnival Revolution, uh, Central Europe, 1989, The Burdens of Freedom, Eastern Europe since 1989, and uh, 1989, Democratic Revolutions, at the uh, Cold War's end. Padraig, you must be very tired of 1989. I am completely tired of it. I'm not going to write any more books about 1989, but here it's the, we're living in the season of, of commemoration, and it's all anybody wants to talk about right now and think about. I mean, it's really the month of commemoration since people seem to think uh, that everything that happened in 1989 happened in Berlin on the night of November 9th. Right. Um, so yes, it's been my life for quite a while and, uh, but no more. I yeah. Promise. Yeah. Funny how these things happen. Um, uh, Patrick and I have known one another, I think forever. We've known one another since dinosaurs walked the earth. That's, that's precisely true. Yes. My, my, and, my children say that's the olden times. Yes. That's the olden times. That's exactly right. So, uh, you say rather polemically that it all didn't happen in November, uh, in Berlin in 1989. So what else was going on and how did we get there? Well, I have to admit that I'm not sure I would have known that story but for serendipity. And that's the, the serendipity is that I was living in Poland in the th- for most of the three years leading up to 1989. And, of course, I didn't know it was leading up to 1989 except in a calendar sense. Um, and, uh, you know, nor did anybody else, so it turns out. But there I was in Poland, 1986, 87, 88, and experiencing it in a particular way, that I was living in a place where a lot of people were interested in uh, 
were engaged in social movements, were opposing the regime in ways that I didn't even really think were possible. And uh, I began to notice that story sort of inadvertently. I mean, I was a historian, but, I, but that wasn't history. That was contemporary. Uh, those were contemporary events. And at first I was trying not to pay attention because I was working in the archives. And eventually I started to notice. Mm-hmm. And what exactly did you notice? Well, I noticed that, uh, I guess, I guess I would say I noticed that uh, so many people in Poland really didn't have any fear of the communists. Mm-hmm. Um, that had long since passed, and that also meant that symbolic, symbolic protest, you know, like uh, waving your fingers in the V for victory sign, which was important to Poles at one at one point, no longer really had any meaning for them. You know, they they had uh, kind of moved past the communists and weren't even interested in them anymore. Uh, and were sort of leave, leading independent lives, as, almost as if the communist regime had uh, had ceased to uh, had ceased to matter. And that's really kind of fascinating that you can you can find a way, even in in a communist society, to begin to act as if you are free. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, what what exactly were they thinking about if not communism? Why didn't they fear the communists anymore? Well, Adam Meeknik once described the communist system in the 1980s as totalitarianism with its teeth knocked out. <laughs> uh, makes you think of, I don't know, uh, one of the Jason movies or something really frightening. But, of course, his point was that it wasn't frightening anymore, uh, that it was, it was comical um, and also not dangerous. Uh, he still calls it totalitarian. Maybe I wouldn't, but, but the idea that its teeth had been knocked out and there's now a, uh, a, a toothless old... Um, a veteran uh, who really can harm no one anymore is probably pretty accurate. It can still be pretty annoying to have around, uh, but maybe no longer uh, so dangerous. So what were people thinking about? They were, they were beginning to think uh, much more, uh, I'll call it concrete terms, about how to organize their own lives. So, for example, the students whom I was spending time with, I mean, they were trying to govern their university themselves and take charge of their education, uh, you know, rather than, um, I don't know, just suffering under the the, uh, the communist uh, education system or escaping from it altogether. They were trying to take control of the university or the high school that I came to know pretty well. Um, the students and the teachers were trying to teach as if the and, and learn as if the uh, communists uh, were no longer there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what I saw people doing was trying to take control of the streets. Uh, one uh, activist explained to me that in, in Poland, in late communist Poland, there are three places you could be free, in the church or in a church, in prison, and on the streets. And he said, you know, but nobody really knows how to be free on the streets, and that's what we want to figure out. Mm-hmm. How can you act as if you're free on the streets? And so by taking part in a demonstration in which you're not throwing rocks, and trying to provoke the police to beat you um, or chase you or whatever, but uh, almost ignoring the police as if they're not important, maybe by giving them flowers, maybe by uh, singing songs when they show up as if you know, they're part of the, uh, the celebration as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I would have thought that uh, they would fear a Soviet or perhaps even Polish Communist Party crackdown, but apparently they didn't. Why not? Well, I mean, one thing is that by the time I was in Poland in 1986, uh, Gorbachev was now in power. Um, on the other hand, uh, Gorbachev, uh, you know, to Poles, and I guess this is generally true in uh, most of uh, the region, uh, maybe the East Germans were a little more enamored of him than others, but to Poles, well, you know, he's just another guy in the Kremlin. Uh, you know, Khrushchev seemed like a, a good man when he came into power uh, and gave a secret speech uh, denouncing uh, Stalin's crimes. But then he, uh, not too long after that, he invades uh, uh, Hungary. So Poles at least weren't giving uh, Gorbachev too much credit. Um, I think they had, they had decided that you know, that just didn't really matter anymore, that the, uh, that the, the Soviets just were not, could not be a factor in their, uh, in their lives. And the, the communists, uh, the, the communists in Poland, were certainly still uh, putting people in prison, and they were, uh, you know, also occasionally uh, killing them. But you know, several people explained it to me this way: that you have to 
you have to simply test the limits. Um, you have to stand up and oppose the regime in order to find out what they're going to do. And then you do so and you discover, wait a second, they, they only gave me three months in prison. Or they detained me for 48 hours and then they let me go. Mm-hmm. And at that point you say, well, okay, so why exactly am I afraid? I mean, a lot of people did still live in fear. Um, but, and, and that was in a way the, the greatest obstacle to change in, uh, in communist Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. What uh, impact did the, uh, I'm thinking of two kinds of background events. One is the uh, Solidarity Movement and the other is um, the activities of the then- um, Pope, how, how did these two things affect uh, what people did and thought? Well, the Pope comes first because when he comes to uh, Poland on his first pilgrimage in June of 1979, that's an incredibly transformative moment. And it's not transformative so much for what he says, although many Poles will quote lines from some of his homilies that year um, or in later pilgrimages and emphasize how important they are. Really what's so important is that all of a sudden there are several hundred thousand people who decide, even though their boss says, you know, you might get in trouble for this, you might, you might decide not to go to the, um, to the mass, the open air mass. They decide that they're going to go anyway. And, you know, which is, a, which is a, a small act of courage. And then they get there and you look around and, well, there's several other, several hundred thousand other people there. And we're all experiencing this, this tiny moment of courage of not being afraid. And discovering indeed that there's nothing to be afraid of, you know that nothing bad is happening. There are no, there are no water cannons, uh, there are no police with truncheons. There are probably secret policemen in the in the crowd by the thousands, but but they're outnumbered 100 to one, surely. And so, you know, it's uh, it's again that it's a, it's a moment when you discover that the regime is more toothless than you realize, mm-hmm. and you discover that you know you are able to. Uh, to stand up and uh, and um, have uh, have that experience of being free, mm-hmm. um, and then maybe you want to take that to the next step to to meet with other people whom you know were there and who were free. Now that doesn't lead directly to solidarity. I mean, there's no way that it does. The Pope does not say, "Poles, go out and form a trade union." <laughs> um, you know, there was that book uh, a dozen years or so ago about how the Pope and Reagan plotted to bring down communism. <laughs> I mean, come on, they didn't. But, uh, but uh, because that's not how the Pope operated or, or, or thought. What was important was he providing that space for people to feel free. And then one of the things that does come out of that is solidarity. That when there's an occasion, a year later, and uh, price hikes come along, and there are people who have been organizing within the factories, uh, they're sort of uh, not connected to the, the Pope's visit. They've been organizing in the factories and thinking about independent trade unions, price hikes come along, strikes happen, and solidarity emerges and quickly balloons. Again, the communists are not sure what to do. They hope they can control it, somehow manage it. So they, they uh, somewhat reluctantly or quite reluctantly agree to legalize it. It becomes a movement of 10 million people. Mm-hmm. And even after martial law is declared in December of 1981, you have, I mean, not all 10 million continue to be active. But many continue, and solidarity provides a kind of reference point for not only for Poles, and this is really important, not only for Poles, but for people across the region. When I went to research Carnival Revolution, I found that in every country I went to, there were people with whom I could conduct interviews in Polish. Mm -hmm. East Germans who had gone to Poland and learned Polish so they could understand what was going on large numbers of Czechs and Slovaks who, I mean, the languages are not that far apart, but they learned Polish. Ukrainians who learned Polish. Even Hungarians and Slovenes who learned Polish. Um, because Poland was such a, um, uh, such a beacon of, uh, of uh, anti-communist opposition mm-hmm. that if you really want to understand how to oppose the communists, learning Polish was, was one good strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The... I- um, uh, I'm sorry, I wanted to break in and say that, um, you know, uh, in 79, obviously, John Paul uh, goes to Poland, but you know where else he went in 79? Iowa. Uh, And that explains so much about about, uh, (laughs) Jimmy Carter's victory there. 300,000 people showed up uh, to see the Pope in Iowa in uh, 79, and it galvanized the Iowans. I was not in Iowa yet, but I just wanted to mention that it's a plug for uh, the state uh, 
from which this podcast comes. So anyway, I'm, I'm that's, sorry. Well, well, we could all, we could just note the connection to uh, Khrushchev. Right? Yeah, no, that's uh, right. Yeah, that's right. Khrushchev, he, he came to Iowa as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was not even thinking about Iowa in 1979, but uh, I was thinking about Iowa right uh, right after then. So anyway, so, uh, solidarity sort of uh, sets the stage and it makes uh, Poland into a kind of a beacon for, I don't know if any communism is really the right word for it, uh, a, a beacon for something. How, how would you characterize it? How about, how about this, a beacon for... Uh, independent political activity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you want to be, if you want to act independently and politically in the communist world, you're tired of putting up with the, uh, you know, the narrow selection that uh, communism offers you, and you don't want to choose retreating into some niche. Um, then uh, the uh, the model that that Poland offers, or the inspiration that Poland offers, is pretty compelling. And you even have people who decide, you know, I want to go to Poland. I want to see how they do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I want, I want to, I want to, I want to hear you say a few more words about the way in which this particular movement spread throughout Eastern Europe, because this is really a moment of people talk a lot about international history, but this was really it. We really see ideas and people crossing borders and mixing in a new way. You know, when I first started researching Carnival Revolution, I assumed I was going to write just about Poland. Um, because that's what I'd done in the past, and it was a pretty straightforward thing to do. Um, but as I began interviewing people and hearing them talk about visiting Czechoslovakia, for example, um, I realized that I was going to have to spread much more widely um, and you know, go beyond what the usual limits of a researcher are. And so I went to Prague, and then I went on to Slovakia. Uh, and on to uh, Budapest. And in each place I found traces of Poles who had visited there, people who were there who had gone abroad. And sometimes it was, it was a very, or had gone to Poland, excuse me. And sometimes it was, it was quite a physical experience um, in the sense of, well, for example, Polish couriers who are walking across the mountains um, into Czechoslovakia with giant backpacks full of oppositional material that they're smuggling in, that's written in Czech, that they're smuggling in because the Czechs don't have as advanced underground printing um, facilities as the Poles do. And sometimes it's, it's more um, indirect. Uh, people in Ukraine, for example, who are listening to Radio Free Europe or Radio Liberty to find out uh, about more about Polish movements. Uh, but in each way, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to cross borders and sometimes physically doing so. Mm -hmm. And what, what did they have in mind? What did they think was going to happen when they uh, began these um, political protests or political activities? Did, did they conceive that the wall would fall and the Soviets would withdraw and democracy would bloom, or did they have more limited goals in mind? You know, most people expressed it to me this way, the ones that I interviewed. I interviewed about 300 people. Holy cow. Um, I was a little insane for this, for this project. Well, when you're dealing with a lot of countries, you end up having to interview a lot of people. But um, most of them said that they didn't imagine it would fall so soon. But they had, and, and it's worth keeping in mind that, that the people we're talking about are people who were between, say, 18 and 30 in 1989. Um, so that's, that's my generation. Um, and so it was also, you know, so I was interested in, in understanding their activism and sometimes thinking about, you know, different life paths and different continents, that kind of thing. Um, but at any rate, they said, you know, eventually it was going to fall. You know, I didn't, the communists weren't serious anymore. And, you know, it was kind of a joke regime. Uh, it was clear that they found it almost hard to imagine how much, how much more serious it had been for their parents or even older brothers. Um, but that it would fall in a couple of years? No, that was hard to imagine. So what did they expect was going to happen? What they wanted to do was, you know, something I mentioned earlier, kind of liberate the, liberate the streets, make people act more freely. And so, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, one of the people I most enjoyed interviewing was a guy named Krzysztof Jakubczak, um, a guy whom I'd known back in, uh, in 86, 87. I sort of, you know, moved in circles that, where I came to, came to know him, uh, through the church, um, the oppositional church that uh, he was part of. But, uh, then I went back and interviewed him 10 years later, 1996. And he told me how, in uh, happenings, the demonstrations that he was part of, he would show up there with his guitar. And all he was thinking about was 
you know, there are a lot of people who may have positive feelings about solidarity, but they don't know what they can do on the street, and they sure don't want to throw rocks or wave banners. So I'm just going to play songs that we all know. And, you know, songs they know from their childhood, historical songs, non-confrontational songs, nothing special. But I'll just start playing the guitar, and people will sing along. And that's not the only thing that's happening. You know, there's, there's, there's an event happening, and there's some kind of demonstration going on. But he recognized that people don't know what to do. If, if people are marching, well, you look at them, and maybe you feel, um, uh, you know, respect for them, that they're so brave but you're not going to join them because you're not sure how to do that, how to cross that barrier. And his thinking was, I need to give people a way to cross that barrier. Once they start singing a song, well, then maybe they'll also, as they're singing along, they're going to accept a leaflet that someone else might hand to them. Or they're going to stay rather than hurrying on to the, to the butcher shop, and they're going to read the, uh, the, the banners, for example, or listen to what somebody else is saying. And maybe they'll feel just a little bit more empowered just because they've They've hung around a little bit longer and, and sung a song that we all know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. They had to be taught what to do. Yes. You know, we think of it as obvious. You know, I, I often tell my students that I think that the, um, the hardest thing to learn about, about uh, well, the 20th century in general, and one of the most important things to learn about the 20th century in general, is, first of all, how is it that most people go along with bad regimes? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is, you know, this is relevant to the, uh, you know, to the experience in Iraq. You know, when when Donald Rumsfeld said we will be welcomed as liberators. OK, he was wrong, but he was wrong in an American way because we assume that people don't like bad regimes and they're ready to rise up. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that they aren't. Mm-hmm. The people live in these regimes, you know, and they just they just live with them year after year. And they get they get inured even in places like Poland where most people are oppositional. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, so they need to be taught because some people do stand up and that's the other amazing thing to learn about. How is it that some people do stand up like Krzysztof Jakubczak? Um, but they find that they have to teach those around them just what it is to do. Mm-hmm. And so this then relates to the question of, you know, what do people learn when they, when they travel to Poland or what do they bring when they travel? It's not a recipe. It's not a checklist. Oh, I need to found an organization. We need to print up leaflets or something like that. It's really more a style um, or a mood or, a, or an atmosphere of being free. So if you, if you came to Poland, if you came to Gdansk or, or Krakow or Wrocław uh, in 1986 or 87 or 88 or even 1989 from another country, what you learned was what it felt like to act as if you were free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you go home and it's, it's a lot harder to act as if you're as if you're oppressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I, I find that uh, fascinating. I think I, I learned all that when I went to college. <laughs> to be honest with you, I was, <laughs> I'd been oppressed for a long time. So uh, you mentioned something earlier that has always fascinated me, and that is the uh, conflict, maybe that is too strong a word, between generations, because um, as you well know, uh, people of the um, who came of age in the 1950s and 1960s uh, really did believe in communism. I, I know that from my experiences in uh, mm-hmm. Russian Soviet Union, that they, they really did think that they were building a, a new society. How, how did older people react to what was going on in the 80s and then in 89? Well, okay, this is something that would really vary across countries because where I think I could generally say that the younger generation, those born in the 1960s or very late 1950s, had no interest any longer in communism, or I mean they never did, but, but they, had, they had separated from any ideological interest. Um, and that's generally true across the region. Among the older generation, it would vary. So in Poland, by the 1980s, there's really nobody who takes communism seriously anymore. I mean, it really does have its teeth knocked out. Um, in Czechoslovakia, you know, they take it seriously sort of out of, out of fear and out of habit. And then in places like East Germany, you still have people who, um, who believe that, uh, that you know, there, there's hope for socialism. So there, there, there's, there's a variance there among the, among the older generation, which needs to be broken down in every country. You know, again, even in Poland, there's, there's an apathy. And so um, one of the groups I write about in, in, uh, in uh, Carnival Revolution is a group called the Orange Alternative, sort of a guerrilla performance art street collective, the way I could describe it. Um, and I was at one of their very first 
happenings, as they called them, and it was only college students. And I was at one of their later ones in the summer of 1988, and it was a cross-section of society, uh, you know, from retirees through high school students. And what happens at that one was quite uh, fascinating. This is late June of 1988, and the police didn't show up. Usually they would show up and arrest a few people, I mean, detain them for 48 hours, but they didn't even show up this time. And the crowd starts chanting, where are the police? Where are the police? I mean, come on, communism does not exist at that point. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. And so if we then say communism doesn't exist in June of 1988 in Poland, well, then the story about, uh, uh, you know, about the Berlin Wall or the story about um, Gorbachev, who does not even make it clear until September of 1988 that East European countries can, uh, can find their own paths to socialism, you know, Gorbachev is not relevant. The fall of the wall or Reagan saying tear down this wall are not relevant. Um, what's relevant is the, are the social movements that have gotten people, and again, a cross-section society, gotten them to the point where they can chant you know, with, with joy uh, and with ridicule, where are the police? Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me ask you uh, uh, to move from the level of the street to a different um region, so to say, and I don't know if you can answer this question because I don't know what kind of archival access there is, and I don't know if you have been to those archives, but what did um, the leaders of Poland, uh, presumably the communist leaders of Poland, what what did they think about what was going on, and um, how did they they relate to uh, the Soviets and the other members of the Warsaw Pact? Do do we have any idea what was happening in high politics at this time? We do. I mean, more and more of that information is is coming out. I mean, they were, you know, they were certainly studying these these movements quite carefully. You know, documents that have leaked either in the Polish case or the Czech case or Hungarian case, the Polish and Czech ones I know the most about. Um, and so, a couple of things. First of all, the uh, uh, students of the 1980s were the ones who. Communists, I think, generally hoped. Well, they're not going to. They're not going to. They're not going to believe in communism. That doesn't. That, that's, that's not on the cards anymore. But they might be bought off with sort of normalization. You know, sort of life goes on. The uh, communists have to. You know, the communists are the ones in power, and you know, with a little bit of travel, uh, hopes hopes for travel, and um, uh, focusing on you know finally getting a car or getting an apartment or getting a job that they will be um, more or less pacified. Um, that was the communist hope. And I think an important um, kind of transformation in, in communist understanding is when they realize that, no, they've lost that generation, um, that, uh, that they really have and decisively turned away, first in Poland and Hungary, and then in Czechoslovakia and East Germany. Um, and that's... Uh, you know, that puts um, the future of of ruling uh, communism in quite a different light. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, uh, in a uh, televised interview with with, uh, with Gorbachev uh, that ran a few years ago. There's an interesting um, a moment where he describes standing on the reviewing stand in Berlin in October of '89. Um, and uh, he was standing next to Honecker, and the uh, Polish prime minister is there, um, and they're watching the, the you know the youth are are coming by, and they're they're wearing you know appropriate costumes, and maybe they've got banners that have been issued by the regime, and as they're coming by, they start chanting Gorby, 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 <laughs> you know, that was not what they were supposed to do, and uh, you know the prime minister, Polish prime minister, leans over to Gorbachev and says, you know, do you understand German? Of course, not that Gorby's in German, but anyway, I'll ask him that, or so Gorbachev says. And Gorbachev says, I understand. And and uh, the prime minister, the communist prime minister, says, you realize this is the end. <laughs> and what you know, what he means is, you know, they have not, they're they're not following the script anymore. Yeah. They're not even interested in following the script. They're standing there in front of Honecker, and they're yelling Gorby. They're saying, screw the script, throw it out the window. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, that, that's, a, that's a really uh, telling anecdote, actually. Yeah. Now, th- but they, what, what's interesting to me is that uh, they didn't, um, at least I don't think in Poland, I don't know about East Germany, I think the situation was somewhat different there. They didn't ask the, um, so they didn't petition the Soviets for help. Right, right. Uh, well, I mean, you know, Gorbachev made it, again, 
by 1989, it is clear that he's not going to offer any help. Um, and I, I guess you could say that, that, that some regimes discover it earlier than do others, and mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's no longer uh, that's no longer part of it. And you know, so it, it is worth pointing out that you know I'm not I'm not suggesting that the only thing that's important in 1989 are the social movements, um, because had regimes decided that water cannons and tanks and I don't know helicopter gunships were still an option. Um, you know, revolution could certainly have been contained at great cost. Um, so the the lack of constraints on on opposition movements plays a really important role. Mm-hmm. So you know, it sort of works in both ways. On the one hand, you need to understand how people got onto the streets, but you also need to understand how, why why they weren't shot. Mm-hmm. And what I'm dealing, what I'm really interested in is how how it is that people get on the streets. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess maybe that's because. Um, first of all, being an American where we don't tend to have revolutions, but secondly, I'm a, I'm not a, I'm not the kind of person who takes part in, in, uh, in uh, street demonstrations. And so for me, it's fascinating to try to understand, well, how exactly do you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it look like? How do you print up a leaflet? How do you distribute leaflets? How do you paint banners? Where do you paint banners? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you make that decision that I'm going to go out onto the street with a banner? And, uh, and how does that affect other people? How did they print things? Oh my goodness! Well, I mean, the you know the poles were incredibly uh, inventive in this. I mean, they they created a um, uh, kind of a um, uh, a uh, primitive sort of silk screening uh, system, which involved uh, printer's ink made out of shoe polish and uh, um, printing frames you made yourself out of pieces of wood and. Um, um, uh, lace curtains, or not lace curtains, but, you know, sheer curtains, um, and elastic from underwear usually, so you could, you could have a kind of a, um, and, and, and a hinge, so you could bounce your, your frame up and down, uh, paper that you steal from wherever. Uh, quite impressive. I mean, they were really able to, uh, do a lot. A, um, a Polish journalist told me a story, which I, which I tell in Burdens of Freedom, about how he visited Kosovo in, uh, sometime in the 1990s, early 1990s, I think. And the Kosovo Albanians are telling them, you know, it's, it's terrible. The Serbians will not allow us, will not, will not allow us to publish uh, textbooks in our language to tell our story of, of our history. We have to use Serbian textbooks in our classrooms. And he looks at them and says, well, why? I said, well, because they control the printing. And he says, wait, I don't get it. You mean you don't print your own stuff? They said, well, of course not. And he says, okay. I mean, he's now, you know, from independent Poland, you know, journalist who's able to travel all around and so on. But he rolls up his sleeve and says, okay, here's how you make printing, printer's ink. Here's how you make a, uh, you know, a printing press. You know, get to work, guys. Mm-hmm. And he comes back a year later, and they present him proudly with a copy of of, of a history textbook wow. in Albanian that they have that they produced on on their underground printing press. Wow, that's that's really amazing. Let, let me um, ask you a kind of an odd question. Uh, I'm, I'm always interested in these international movements. What what role, if any, did the uh, enormous and well organized, at least it was well organized, um, Polish expat community in the United States, or I don't know if it exists in France or Britain or something. Uh, did it play any role at all in in None. helping this? None. None. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was sort of nope. my impression as well. Because you see, you know, if you go into the sort of the, the center section of any large, especially East Coast American community, you'll find the old uh, Polish district. We have Czechs here in Iowa, actually. If you go to the yeah. um, if you go to the museum up on the hill, museum. When I say museum, the the uh, uh, the Kladbysha. What is that word? The, um, you know, where they bury people. Cemetery, Cemetery thank you. I don't, you know, I haven't had a good night's sleep in two years. So, uh, my young son. So, yeah, they go to the cemetery, you'll see all these checks here. But So, it played no role whatsoever, huh? No. I mean, there is a story to be told about uh, monetary assistance from the U.S. government and to a lesser extent from other other sources that, you know, help to pay for um well, the, the, the particular thing that helped to pay for was, you know, let's say you've lost your job and underground solidarity pays you, your family money uh, to keep you, uh, keep you going when you've lost your job for political reasons. Um, that money, you know, some of that money came from abroad, um, from, uh, uh, you know, USAID and things like that. And that story still is being told, but um, 
but emigre groups play a play a negligible role. In the Polish case, a little bit a little bit more important in the Czech case, um, where you have uh, Czech groups in uh, Germany and Sweden, in particular, also in Canada, um, who um, uh, you know do smuggle things in and try to to try to assist uh, opposition groups in Czechoslovakia. Yeah, I know, I know that I knew these in the early '80s. Actually, maybe it was the mid '80s. I knew these um, Latvians who had been going to camp uh, since they were uh, knee-high to a jackrabbit preparing for the liberation of Latvia. Oh, that's and, really interesting. They, yeah, no, it really is interesting. And, and, and they, they had these camps in Germany, by the way, uh, where they would go and they would, um, for all I know, they were uh, studying guerrilla warfare because they were certain <laughs> that Latvia was going to be free and that was Well, that. it turns out that what they must have been studying was folk songs because, yeah. you know, that <laughs> yeah. Latvia has this singing revolution. Yeah, exactly. Folk songs. <laughs> Maybe folk songs was it, but they were, um, yeah. yeah, they they used to walk around. They're the only people I knew that used to walk around with, this was at Berkeley, anti-communist um, T-shirts. <laughs> I don't even know where you get an anti-communist T-shirt. That's pretty different. Yeah, but um, it's, a, it's a really interesting story about how they you know, organized the, this community. Uh, one thing I just want to, I want to say about this is that, you know, if we're thinking about international influences, and you know, and moving beyond Eastern Europe, what's really worth uh, focusing on is that the, the influence tends to go the other way. Mm-hmm. There's after 1989, um, well, and even during those uh, during 1989, the uh, the example that uh, the the fall of communism uh, in Eastern Europe uh, gives to the rest of the world really needs to be um, you know needs to be remembered. So as an example, when um, uh, people in the African National Congress in South Africa are trying to think through how are we going to, you know, we're, we're going to have the situation where you know, we're, not, we're not going to be slaughtering the, the leadership of the, of, of the apartheid state. We're going to be sitting down and negotiating with them. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Yeah, no, that's, right? that's and, a and you know how to do it in a technical sense, in a checkmark sense, but but how do you do it in a in a mood atmosphere style kind of sense? You know how do you walk up to somebody and shake his hand when he's the guy who put you in prison for decades? Yeah. And they turned to not only but among other things they uh, they got in touch with people in Poland and said, well, could you just tell us how you did this? Mm-hmm. And there were some visits between Poland and South Africa uh, in trying to explain this. Hmm, that, yeah, that's remarkable. I do remember I I you know I. I Lived in Ireland for a year. You're of Hibernian descent. Um, th- I lived in Ireland for a year, and I would I would talk to people about the troubles, and and uh, I would ask them, um, you know, who who is particularly significant, you know, in your uh, your estimation to try to come end the troubles, and they would always mention Martin Luther King. As it's, yeah. it's really quite remarkable. Every uh, Irish person that I met there was, uh, you know, kind of gaga about Martin Luther King and nonviolence, and this is the way we have to go. So um, it, it, I can certainly understand how people in South Africa might look to Poland a- as an example, because it is quite remarkable that this thing came off basically without bloodshed. I, yeah. I, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, because the 20th century is uh, littered with the bodies of people that have tried to do things like this, and so it's it's particularly heartening, I, th- I think, and, and much to the credit of everybody involved. Well, well here's, the, here's, here's the thing, Marshall, that 1989, uh, you know, really was uh, different. I think historians, you know, it's, it's odd that, you know, historians, we look, to, we look to the more distant past, and we have no problem seeing paradigm shifts, if we want to use that term. In fact, that's what we stake our careers on. And yet we can look at the present uh, or the near, the recent past, you know, within our lifetimes, and we're uncomfortable with talking about paradigm shifts. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd rather come back in 400 years and say, wow, that sure changed. But, you know, I feel pretty confident that we can look at the revolutions of the late 1980s, and here I'm think, talking more broadly because um, in the book I've just finished, I've been looking at revolutions from the Philippines in 1986 through South Africa in uh, 90 to 94, and say these were different. And they were a different type of revolution. They were still revolutions, but they were nonviolent. They often involved elections. They involved focus on concrete issues and not just grand slogans like democracy, but very concrete issues often focused within local communities and dealing with, with local problems and, and maybe larger but concrete problems like the environment or peace issues and so on. And, uh, and they brought about change, as you say, Basically, without bloodshed, mm-hmm. um, and that does represent a uh, 
a kind of a paradigm shift that has ha- that has taken place within our lifetimes. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I you bring to mind Hegel. Nobody reads Hegel anymore, but uh, Hegel believed that sort of civilization writ large um, uh, moved in a certain direction. That everything kind of changed in a massive way, in a way that we we are are so immersed in that we can't really see it. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's sort of obviously true. So uh, it, it really may be the case that that something fundamentally about um, not human history, but humanity has has changed since, you know, I don't know, since World War II or something like that, because it, it, this was uh, something that was very unexpected to those of us who, who, who watch these things. So, you know, maybe the software in all of our heads has been tweaked a little bit so that um, things will um, be different. They certainly were different in 1989. Let, let me ask you a, a question that, that um, I think needs to be asked, because we, uh, as historians, we all often say, well, okay, uh, this happened in 1989 or this happened in the 80s. And then we uh, forget to ask what happened afterwards. People were dancing on the wall and dancing in the streets and drinking champagne. And then what happened? Because it wasn't all roses, was it? Or velvet? Well, no. I mean, it wasn't all roses. I mean, because there, you had, you know, you had the, the difficult work of transformation uh, of economies and of political systems and of national uh, orientations, um, you know, that all needed to, uh, to change. Um, over you know the next 10, 15 years, which which you know, it really has to a great extent. What um, and here again, I have to um, I have to say that you know it's been a remarkable success. That you look now 20 years later, and you know sure there are definitely um, people who have been marginalized, left behind by change. But if we look uh, at a larger scale, you know. Poland and Slovakia and Slovenia and the Czech Republic, Hungary, the Baltics, uh, and so on. People there live better, not just economically, but also in terms of the rights they enjoy, than they did 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's been a, that's been a real success. Um, but you know, again, that was not an easy thing to do. However, it would not have been possible, I think, if 1989 was sort of a year zero. What I mean by that is that. You know, if we think of, of the revolution of 1989 as being something very sudden, that suddenly the communist regimes imploded or people just suddenly rose up and swept these regimes away, well, then the, the, the road afterwards would have been much rockier. But since there were years of, of preparation, of organization, of, of this uh, underground civil society and so on, that did train people to, um, to, uh, uh, for the tasks that, that faced them after the fall of communism. No, I mean, I think you're exactly right, and I think you can demonstrate that in the uh, comparative context. If you look at what happened in um, Russia or the Soviet Union in 1991, that really was sort of year zero. Um, I was yeah. there, and I can tell you people were uh, completely lost. They had yeah. no idea what to do. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah. they, didn't, they, didn't, they just didn't really understand what was going to come next. And Although even there, Marshall, what's remarkable is that there was less, that, that there was much less bloodshed than yeah, one no, could yeah. have expected. Oh, and yeah. that, you know, Gorbachev, uh, you know, for that he deserved the peace prize. No, no, I think that's exactly, that's exactly, back when they used to give the peace prize for something, now they don't anymore. I don't know what they give it for. But no, you're entirely right. And, and I remember saying, you know, kind of, uh, well, I'm an expert on Russia and I know what's going to happen and it's going to be bloody. And uh, actually it wasn't bloody at all. I was very happy yeah. to be wrong. It was, it was with a couple of exceptions. And, incredibly uh, peaceful. Let, let yeah. me ask you about a couple of issues which, um, as a historian, I'm always interested in because uh, one of the light motifs of the 20th century is um, a, a kind of, uh, what is the French word for it? It's a, um, a revanchism, you know, the, the, the notion that you've been done wrong by some other country and that you're going to have to get back at them. And, and I'm right. thinking of the Polish and German border. Uh, oh, goodness. Yeah. Yes. Th- this, well, this, if you had asked me in 1989... If you had said, okay, there are two nations, uh, the Poles and the Czechs, one of them, looking t- you know, 10, 15, 20 years hence, is going to be resentful of the Germans at every single step and constantly getting in fights with them, and the other is going to have great relations. Mm-hmm. I would have said, that's easy. The Czechs are going to have great relations because you know they're, they've lived side by side with Germans for a very long time, mm-hmm. et cetera. And the Poles, I mean, they have a lot, lot to resent. They're going to, and they have sort of romantic, tilting at windmills kind of tradition. They're going to be constantly resenting them and, and you know, um, cutting off their ear to spite the face and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's been the opposite. Mm-hmm. And why is Although that? Although now, now the Czechs are sort of finding a sort of rapprochement with the Germans. Mm-hmm. Well, I think. Uh, I mean, a lot of the logical explanations don't quite work because the uh, the poles have have uh, you know again 
um, much more to be angry at the Germans about and somewhat less to apologize for. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, the ethnic cleansing mm-hmm. of Czechoslovakia at the end of the war uh, cost about 10 to 30,000 German lives. Mm-hmm. Um, several hundred Germans died in the Polish case, but you know this is not comparable. Mm-hmm. And I think here again the reason is that uh, in the Polish opposition in the 70s and 80s, they really talked a lot about well, what, is, what should our relationship be with the Germans? You know, mm-hmm. what is that history about? And they also talked about, you know, what is our relationship with the Ukrainians and with the Jews? Mm-hmm. Um, Czechs just didn't get into these questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems that, that the Charter 77 in Czechoslovakia decided, you know, the German issue, that's just toxic. We're just not going to go there. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Poles, I mean, because there were so many more of them in the opposition, the intellectual opposition was so much larger, there were at least a few who said, all right, let's tackle these problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the ground was laid. I mean, it was not, again, it was not easy, but the ground was laid for, for a much quicker thawing of relations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that plus, there, there's just been a pragmatic streak among the Poles that has just really surprised me ever since 89. And, and what about relations with the Russians? How do, how do Poles uh, conceive of their relationship with the Russian Federation now? Uh, that's still that's still a really uh, tough relationship, uh, not surprisingly. Um, you know, uh, when... Uh, uh, you have prominent Russians saying, well, you know, Poland was uh, uh, planning to attack the Soviet Union um, or that, uh, you know, cotton is just really not that important. Uh, it's easy to still, uh, you know, feel uh, uncertainty towards the, uh, towards the Russians. And that's certainly how Poles interpreted the, uh, the war with Georgia um, as, as being a threat to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there, too, I expect pragmatism to take the upper hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you and know, for just, just you know, it's worth it if you want to uh, make money. You can, sell, you can sell things to the Russians. Yeah, I knew Russians said this was, again, in the 90s who used to uh, really enjoy – this was a big business. They would take trains to Poland mm-hmm. and buy stuff, yeah. and then they would come back and sell it in Moscow, and that was, yeah. a, that was big business. And, and Poland wasn't exactly rich at that point, so you can imagine how bad off – the poor Russians were. Uh, let me ask you something that I, I think many people will be interested in. How is, um, how, how is the Holocaust understood today, and, and how was it understood um, uh, after 1989 in, in Poland? Did they know a lot about it before? And, um, you know, cause yeah. so there have been some sort of, I, I, I think, sort of unseemly things said uh, about uh, the, the, the Poles' um, understanding of the Holocaust. Right. So I'd just like you to clear that up. Okay, so circa 1989. Uh, Poles were certainly aware of the, of the, you know, of, of the general experience of World War II and tended to see the Holocaust as part of more general Polish suffering. That's in part because, you know, you could go to Auschwitz and see reference to, uh, six million Polish citizens who were killed, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, yes, you could find out that, 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 uh, millions of them were Jews, but the, but the, um, the sense you would get was that, in general, Hitler had it in for Poles and Poland and Polish citizens. Well, that, that would be well, Putin, that would be true. <laughs> it certainly yeah. would be true, but you know that sort of yeah. that sort of that, that dominated. Yeah. Um, and in addition, the communist regime, which was a very nationalist regime in Poland, uh, had emphasized had had played on on uh, anti Polish anti-Semitism. Um, as a way to keep itself in power. Mm-hmm. So, for example, labeling opposition figures as Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we are circa 1989. Um, over the next 20 years, the, the shift has been somewhat gradual, but surveys today say things like, show that, for example, a plurality, maybe sometimes a majority of polls will say, um, Children should be taught in school that Poles were not only victims, but sometimes uh, carried out crimes against their fellow citizens, mm-hmm. meaning Jews. Mm-hmm. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is. You know, that uh, you know, one survey that I, I can think of right now, something like 40% said yes to that question. Yes, it should be taught in schools that we also killed Jews as well as being victims mm-hmm. of the Germans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a, a number of reasons for that. I would say the main one is that, uh, uh, well, two things. One is that you've had journalists and politicians who have been unafraid to say, look, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. 
um, and to keep on repeating it. And, you know, and, and clergymen as well. You know, John Paul II's uh, uh, apology to the Jews is incredibly important. Paul's mm-hmm. listened to everything that he said. Mm-hmm. That's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, uh, Poles have, have gradually shed their sense of being constantly victims. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of woken up and looked around and said, you know, actually we're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're not uh, being victim, you know. So, so I'm not, you know, I I, I don't want to sort of say this wrong, but it, it, but you know, now if some crazy politician says, you know, Poland's being attacked by world jewelry, you know, the average <laughs> Poland look around and say, where, where exactly is this taking place? Yeah. Because I don't see this attack going on. Not that they could see it in in the past, you know. Then there was there, you know, there was a lot of. Uh, of of um, of self delusion, a mass self delusion in in the past, but you know in, in the present it's it, it's even more patently ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so really, you know, you still have uh, there's no question you still have uh, anti semitism uh, in Poland, um, but of the sort of mass conspiracy variety, I mean it's really marginal. And uh, you know, somebody who runs on that, you know, every presidential campaign is somebody who runs on that platform alone and gets you know around one percent of the vote. Yeah, yeah, and I do think I, I I agree with you completely about the role of the of the of sort of the John Paul era Catholic Church. I think they had a lot to do with that because they, they yeah. really did do the right thing there, and and uh, they they deserve a lot of credit for it. Uh, another thing um, you mentioned um, how Poles feel about themselves these days and people in Eastern Europe in general. And one thing I noted, and just completely casually, and I may be wrong about this, but you know after 1991, a, a lot of Russians that I knew, and and I think this is correct were really aching to leave Russia, and a lot of them did. Uh, yeah. Was there any out-migration in Poland? Sure was. I mean, there's a million, there's a million uh, uh, Poles, uh, or supposedly, I mean, one hears various numbers, um, working in Ireland and, and Great Britain. Um, you know, a lot of them, of course, say they're going to come back, and a lot of them come back every weekend. You know, Ryanair tickets are cheap. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can, you know, if you plan ahead, you can round trip for 25 bucks or something. Um, but you know, a lot of them won't come back. A lot of them have now have now settled in. Um, and you know, yeah, it turns out that it's not the the great unwashed who have left, but you know, often the uh, the talented, the future doctors and lawyers and, and dentists and so on, who have decided they they'd rather uh, uh, live abroad. And now it's not a question of having to labor on the black market uh, in some foul uh, you know restaurant back room washing dishes, but you can you can get a real job and uh, you get paid legally for it. So mm-hmm. absolutely, there. You know, you do have that. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's really hard to say if that's a problem mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, with Poland being in the EU and the other countries being in the EU, it's really hard to say in what way precisely it's a problem. I mean, is it a threat to national survival? Probably not. Or actually, certainly not. Is it a threat to uh, economic prosperity? Also, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a blow to pride, though. Well, I think the you know the analogy to Ireland isn't a bad one at all. I mean, we, there's tons and tons of Irish people in the United States who came in the 19th century and still come. You know, I mean, the old joke being that you know Dad was always in London while Mom stayed uh, back in Limerick. Uh, but yeah. uh, there's there's certainly no shortage of Irish pride. Yeah. <laughs> I think I can say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so if there's a large Polish pride in the future in Ireland and the UK, that's pretty good. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. So, what is the outlook for Poland right now? I mean, how is the Polish economy doing? And 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 you know, uh, what, how do you know, I, was, I was there this summer, and uh, Poland is the only country in Europe this past year which had a positive growth rate. Wow, it was like one percent. Mm-hmm. The Poles would ask me, so uh, what's the deal? Is there really is there really a recession in the United States? Mm-hmm. Okay, you can notice. I say, yeah, you can certainly notice it. You know, you'll usually know somebody who's lost a job or lost a home or something like that. And they would sort of nod, thinking, you know, this can't really be true because Poles are used to the idea that they suffer more than anybody else. And they're thinking, well, I haven't noticed a recession here. Well, it must be coming eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it hasn't. And again, still might come. Uh, you know, there are economists who say that's the case. But for the moment, they're doing, they're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and in large part, they say it's because uh, kind of say it's because they diversified their economy in ways that some other countries nearby didn't, and they also didn't invest in American mortgages, which was pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, like Iceland, yeah. For, for, yeah, for, like, like Iceland, like Latvia, like yeah. Hungary. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. So, what are the um, you know, one of the things that I remember reading about uh, was a place called Nova Huta. It's called Nova Huta, isn't it? Yeah. Am I right about that? Yes, yeah, so it's an enormous steel town they built. What, what has happened to people who lived in those places? 
Well, Nova Hoot has become sort of a, um, uh, uh, a kind of a hip place to, to try to move to if you want um, to sort of experience a sort of post-socialist chic. Um, you know, the factory still, the steel mill still exists, but it's vastly smaller than it used to be. Um, uh, and you have, you know, and that's emblematic of factory towns all over the region, you know, that they're shells of their former selves. Um, I mean, unemployment is going down in them as, as you have new industries uh, emerging, uh, you know, computer industries, you know, other kinds of manufacturing, small manufacturing for uh, often for, for Western, you know, like Western car companies, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting because I know that in the uh, Soviet case, and I think this is true elsewhere in Eastern Europe, that, that some of these uh, large towns that were built on the Soviet plan are really in dire straits. So it's, yeah. it's good to hear I mean, that it's, it's hip. It, you know, distance matters. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and so if you're, if you're within a couple hundred miles of, uh, of Germany or Rotterdam uh, port or something like that, that's a lot better than being a thousand miles from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Before I, I ask you, um, we're coming to the end of our time right now. We've taken up a lot of your time. Before I um, ask you what uh, your next project is, I want to put in a plug or just see what you think about um, what I think is the... Uh, it may be, <laughs> I'm going to show my true colors here. It may be the most masterful uh, set of films ever made. And it was made, I think, in 1989 in Poland, and it's called Declog. Have you, oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, amazing, amazing film. Yeah, I, I actually watched these and was completely gobsmacked at, at how yeah. beautiful they were and how poignant they were and how, uh, you know, re really just incredibly intelligent they were. And I just want to put in a plug for them. And I'm sure you can get them on Netflix or something, and there are 10 of them. Uh, one yes. for each of the Ten Commandments, and and uh, they're only fifty minutes long. Yeah. each one of them, so they're easy to watch. Right, and they're not they're not preachy or anything, but they're uh, you know I've seen each of them a couple of times because I yeah. was I was I watched a lot of sort of things on uh, foreign stuff on um, DVD, and and I have to tell how are they thought of in Poland? Oh, they're 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 thought of as you know as, as really great great works. I, I watched them when they were first shown on Polish television in nineteen eighty nine ninety, and what was funny about it is that you know each one is connected to one of the Ten Commandments. And each one, uh, what Shlovsky does is sort of turn it around and say, okay, so honor your father and mother, but what if your father, you don't know who your father is, and your mother, you know, somebody mm. twists it around and says, okay, now what do you think, right? And uh, the only problem was that as I was watching each week, you know, so you'd watch number four, and then there'd be this debate, like, oh, yeah, that one's about this. No, it, that number four, the fourth commandment is this. No, it's yeah. that. No, it's something yeah. else. And I think, wait a second, this is a Catholic country. But nobody <laughs> could remember what the, what the Ten Commandments were. Yeah. Yeah, there's some of them that I, I remember very, very vividly, and I like to go back and watch them. I, I like to think that Declog will be thought of as, uh, you know, I can't really think of the right example, but, you know, it's really, really sort of classic filmmaking that it really yeah. is, is going to go yeah. in the canon as, as things that people in 150 or 200 years think of as, as absolute genius. And they have a particular historical moment because yeah. it's taking place there in Poland in the late 80s. You can see that. And yep. and it's, uh, I, I just think, uh, what was the director's name? Kishlowski or something? Kishlowski. Yeah, yeah. Kishlowski. Yeah, the yeah, so they're, 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 they're so perfectly rooted in time and place, yeah. and yet they're also universal. No, they're, I, I, much more than that. Like I say, I watched them and just sort of on a lark, and uh, I was uh, I went into the office the next day and said, Jesus, um, I send people emails, I think, and say, you really have to watch these. They're so incredible. Anyway, okay, so let me um, close this interview by asking you, Padraig Kenny, what, what are you working on now? What is your next project? It's another book about 1989, isn't it? Oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> but, you know, when I was doing these uh, the interviews with, with uh, these activists from the 80s, you know, a number of them had, been, uh, had, had gone to prison for, uh, for, for their activities. And especially when I was talking to people who were my age, I couldn't help but think, wow, what would I do? You know, would I go to prison for my beliefs? And exactly what is that like? And then also, why would you? you know, yeah. What's the point of going to prison and what do you do there? Mm -hmm. And I even noticed that people would talk about themselves in terms of, you know, the communists put me in prison for X number of years instead of saying, you know, this is what I did. Mm -hmm. And so I began to think, well, so what exactly is the point of political imprisonment? And that has led me to a, uh, a book which I'm writing now on the political prisoner in the modern world. Mm -hmm where I use uh, archival research in Poland and Ireland and South Africa, mm -hmm. covering the last 140 years, roughly, which I think really the, the time span of the modern political prisoner, to ask, what is a political prisoner, or who is a political prisoner? When are political prisoners? And the most important question for me is, why are there political prisoners? Mm -hmm. And the answer is not, you know, because there's evil in the world. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's simplistic. And because a political prisoner is not a good person imprisoned by a bad regime. 
because there can be bad people who are political prisoners, like mm-hmm. Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what unites them, and again, why do regimes imprison rather than shoot or exile or simply tolerate people? Mm-hmm. And why do some people desire to go to prison in order to demonstrate their beliefs? Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, it sounds like an absolutely great project, and I'm sure you'll do a terrific job on it, and you have to promise to um, come back on the show when you're done, which will be probably in a couple of months, right? This one's always taking a little longer. No, I know exactly. So uh, I want to say to our audience that we've been talking to Padraig Kenny, who has numerous books about 1989, all of which are called 1989 in some fashion or another. And uh, you can um, find links to them on the New Books in History website where you can um, buy them and help Padraig pay for uh, his children's uh, college educations. Um, And, uh, Padraig, I just want to say thanks very much for being on the show. Marshall, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. All right, thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Padraig Kenny about his new book, 1989, Democratic Revolutions at the Cold War's End. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.